Thank you for joining us today and welcome to another timely conversation from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I'm Cliff May, FDD's founder and president. In a hearing in March of this year, the U.S. Army Chief of Staff testified that we confront complex and dangerous threats, including those from Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and terrorist organizations. The Army assessed that Russia has the greatest capability to challenge U.S. interests today and is expected to deliver modern capabilities to its forces through the mid to late 2020s. But the chief quickly noted that China is our nation's greatest long-term challenge, saying Beijing is expected to be the world's largest investor in research and development by 2030, fielding a fully modernized force by 2035. That includes such areas as artificial intelligence, AI, robotics, energy storage, 5G networks, quantum information systems, and biotechnology. Meanwhile, he said Iran and North Korea pursue advanced capabilities and weapons of mass destruction. To deter these threats and ensure our soldiers never confront a stronger foe, the Army is pursuing the most significant modernization effort in decades. To discuss these challenges and how the Army is responding, we are honored to host two of the service's key leaders, the Under Secretary of the Army, Mr. James E. McPherson, and the Vice Chief of Staff, General Joseph M. Martin. For those who aren't familiar with our work, FDD is a research institute exclusively focused on national security and foreign policy. We are nonpartisan and we accept no funds from foreign governments, never have, never will. This event is hosted by FDD's Center on Military and Political Power which seeks to promote understanding of the defense strategies, policies, and capabilities necessary to deter and defeat threats to the freedom, security, and prosperity of America and of America's allies. The center is led by former National Security Advisor, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, who serves as chairman of CMPP's Board of Advisors. CMPP is run by Brad Bowman, the center's senior director, who will moderate today's session. Brad served as National Security Advisor to members of the Senate Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees. As a U.S. Army officer, he flew Black Hawk helicopters and served as an assistant professor at West Point. I encourage you to learn more about the center by visiting fdd.org forward slash CMPP. Today's program is one of many we host throughout the year. For more information on all our work and our areas of focus, please visit fdd.org or follow us on Twitter, just at FDD. I'm now pleased to turn the floor over to my colleague, Brad Bowman, to introduce our featured guests and begin the discussion. Thank you, Cliff. I wanna thank everyone who is watching. I hope you and your families are safe and well, and I especially want to welcome James E. McPherson, the 34th Undersecretary of the United States Army, as well as General Joseph M. Martin, the Vice Chief of Staff of the Army. As the Undersecretary of the Army, Mr. McPherson is the Secretary of the Army's Senior Civilian Assistant and Principal Advisor on matters related to the management and operation of the Army. He's also the Chief Management Officer, where he focuses on business operations and transformation initiatives. He previously served as the General Counsel of the Army. Prior to that, he served in the U.S. Navy, retiring as the Judge Advocate General of the Navy. Sir, as an aside, we're going to have to talk about uh, where you sit during the Army-Navy game. But anyway, General Martin, as Vice Chief of Staff, is the Army's second highest ranking active duty officer. He has proudly served the United States in uniform for 34 years, deploying to Iraq on numerous occasions and commanding at all levels. Gentlemen, it is my honor to welcome both of you. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Brad, for that very kind introduction and for this opportunity to join you today. We're both very privileged to do that. And I wanna thank you, especially to my wingman, the Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, General Joe Martin, for being with us here as well. As you can imagine, the Army has been very busy the past few months. We continue to make progress across our top three priorities, readiness, modernization, and reform. We continue to man, train, and equip the force, and we continue to conduct overseas operations. We have accomplished these missions while simultaneously supporting the whole of nation response to COVID-19 and ensuring the health and protection of our force. When we identified the wide-ranging implications of COVID-19 on our environment, we focused it on three guiding principles. Number one, the health protection of our soldiers, our civilians, and their families is our top priority. Number two, we help detect, prevent, and treat COVID-19 at the local to national level. And number three, 
we maintained our readiness to fight tonight, even in this COVID environment. Protecting the force required prudent safety precautions across all our installations and in all of our formations. Some examples include restricted travel, altered or deferred exercises, and all units following applicable health protection guidelines. And yet, in this COVID environment with health protection measures in place, the Army continues to meet its modernization objectives. Recruitment numbers have been on target, and many training events and exercises have resumed in a very safe fashion. From early on in the COVID fight, and it continues today, the Army has contributed to the national response by adding manpower, medical equipment, supplies, and our own researchers who are pursuing vaccines and therapeutics. At the height, the Army integrated over 9,000 service members from all the components into a synchronized, multidisciplinary response effort led by U.S. Army North, commanded by Lieutenant General Laura Richardson, acting as the Joint Forces Land Component Commander to support the national response. Another Army leader in the national effort is General Gus Perna, the co-leader of Operation Warp Speed, a partnership of multiple agencies and private firms working to provide a safe and effective vaccine. By empowering Army leaders to make decisions based on data and location, the Army has maintained readiness by setting the conditions to train and operate in a safe environment. And finally, our long-term priorities have not changed. The Secretary and Chief of Staff remain laser-focused on the challenges outlined in the National Defense Strategy, great power competition, regional state actors, and violent extremist organizations. These challenges remain and will continue to drive our Army priorities. And I'll pause here and pass it over to General Martin. Thank you, Undersecretary, and Brad, it's a pleasure to be back with you again. As the Undersecretary described, we spent a lot of organizational energy ensuring that our, our readiness, our priorities of readiness, modernization, reform remain on track as we work through COVID-19 and the pandemic. As important our our three priorities are, our soldiers, civilians, and families remain our, our focus and most precious asset to the Army. Uh, as he also stated, we've got a, we've put a lot of hard work into protecting the health of our soldiers as they train and deploy on missions throughout the globe. You know, we've had a lot of racial strife in our nation as of late. It's important to note that the Army is taking steps to ensure that our people are able to come to work in an inclusive environment. We've had hard discussions on race, suicide, and helping Army leaders, and I can tell you Secretary McPherson and I have done these at multiple locations across the Army. We'll continue to do that. This is a continuum. It is not just an episodic event. While I consider the United States Army to be one of the most inclusive organizations in the world, I can tell you based on my observations and my discussions, we still have work to do. To address this, we're rolling out an initiative called Project Inclusion. And that's to ensure that we're treating our people fairly and equally. Ultimately, we know that by taking care of our people, we'll keep our priorities on track, particularly our modernization efforts. And to that, the Army's undergoing the most significant transformation since the 1980s. Every 40 years or so, the Army undergoes this type of trans transformation. The last modernization effort was significant, and we're using that equipment and the blueprint we created then for how we move forward with our current modernization. To put this in perspective, we're still fighting on the same weapon platforms that we were fielding when I was a lieutenant 34 years ago. They're the Abrams tank, the Bradley fighting vehicle, the Apache, the Blackhawk helicopters, and our Patriot system. They've helped us shape history and make history. We fought three major conflicts, Desert Storm, Operation Iraqi Freedom, in Operation Enduring Freedom. And if you don't think that they weren't at the center of our success in the Cold War, you're mistaken. The longstanding result of this previous modernization effort highlights the importance of our current effort. It too will be long lasting. The American people's investment in our Army will give us the capability we need to fight for the next 40 years and beyond. This effort is characterized by tremendous technological advancements. To narrow it down and be more specific, we're investing what we call the 31, four, 31 plus four programs. That's a total of 35 new, new and advanced capabilities we're bringing to the fight. They include long range precision fires, allowing the strategic level targeting, next generation combat vehicles and aerial platforms and the individual soldier equipment improvements. Many of these capabilities will be enhanced by robotics and unmanned capability. But this modernization effort is not about equipment. It transforms the way we fight. 
The last modernization effort coincided with a new Army doctrine called Airline Battle, which emphasized the close coordination between the, layer, the, the, the air and land domains. Our new concept, called multi-domain operations, or MDO for short, is the next step and includes other domains such as space and the elect electromagnetic domains, to name a few. A critical tenet of MDO is something we call convergence, which is the ability to enable any shooter, any sensor, and any C2 node to have the right information, authorities, and data in near real time. It allows us to mass combat power effects in one domain from many other domains in order to open windows of opportunity. Clearly, it's an exciting time to be a soldier as we verge on developing and issuing cutting-edge technologies, and this modernization effort will provide several new generations of soldiers with everything they need to fight, win, and dominate on the future battlefield tomorrow. I look forward to talking more about our modernizations throughout the rest of the day. And so that, that concludes my thoughts, Brad, and uh, over, back over to you. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen. That, that was excellent. I uh, really appreciated that. Um, you know, we're going to talk a lot about uh, soldiers and equipment. I'm eager to do that. But I thought maybe we could start with a question that lays out uh, the big picture for listeners who, uh, you know, may not be tracking some of these specifics as closely as, as the three of us. You know, the Army recruits, trains, and equips, as you know far better than me, soldiers based on the assessed or assumed threats to our interests. When you both look at, out at the world, what do you see as the leading threats to America's core national security interests, and how have you seen those threats change over time? I think the national defense strategy really pivoted for us from a focus upon counterinsurgency operations to um, near-peer or peer competitors. Uh, for almost two decades, we've been fighting a war that was defined on 9-11. Uh, protecting America from that uh, terrorist threat and ensuring that that threat was dealt with as an away game and not on the streets of America as it was on 9-11. Uh, we, the Army, did that in, in an outstanding manner. Uh, but to do that, we had to focus our attention. We had to spend our money uh, on the fight that was in front of us. And as a result, our modernization uh, paid that price. And so now we're playing a little bit of a catch-up game in modernization. I know we're going to talk about modernization here in a few minutes. But getting back to your question, I think the national defense strategy properly pivoted us to that near-peer and peer competitor being China, currently number one, Russia being number two. Uh, but we are also focused upon those other state actors. Uh, and, and finally, we're focused as well upon uh, the threat from the, uh, the non-state actors. But right now, the concern that, that occupies our time almost every minute of every day is China and Russia. I'd just like to add a couple of things uh, to the Unders answer. Uh, so while we were busy doing what we were doing for the past 18 years, our, our principal adversaries were busy studying the way that we fought, the American way of war. If you've ever read Russell Wigley's book, it's a great book. I commend it to anybody. Uh, but they looked at how they could defeat our ability to mass uh, joint fires at a point on the battlefield so that we could maneuver to a position of advantage and dominate our adversary. Well, what they've done is they've created these, these uh, created capabilities that allowed them to create what we call anti-axis and aerial denial capabilities which does not allow us to mass joint fires at the decisive point and maneuver upon those formations to dominate them. And so we've been studying this. Uh, the Russian Next Generation Warfare study was the first, but we've done many studies since then, many experiments, many analytics. And through those studies, we developed the multi-domain operations concept. And through that concept and further studies and experimentation, we determined gaps. And that's where we decided to invest in future technologies that would enable us to dominate these near-peer adversaries, regardless of what they can bring to the fight, uh, should we have to fight them. And we understand much better now that it's not just about conflict, it's not just about crisis, but it's competition before con conflict where you can uh, deter enemies, enemies, the, the, the adversaries, uh, will to fight by presenting to them the capability to dominate them should you evolve into crisis or god forbid conflict and so that's where we've been focusing and we're on a great path with that but 
what we're talking about today and what you know about today has been the work of the Army essentially since 2014 when we began studying this with interest in determining where we would go in the future and hence the sense of urgency as we continue to modernize the force yet still maintain a ready force while we do it. I think the point that you made about uh, deferred modernization is so important because as, as you gentlemen both know for, for so long after 9-11 you know, we were just really focusing because we had to on Iraq and Afghanistan. Like you said, meanwhile, our adversaries were studying us aggressively modernizing China and Russia. And in some cases, you know, leapfrogging or catching up with our technologies. And we just, you know, we're to the point now where we can't delay any longer. We have to modernize and fill these weapons to, to do exactly what you said. I think that's such an important point. Um, what One of you said that, you know, the Army is about people. That's certainly true of the Army more than arguably any service. Uh, I was honored to record a podcast with a Sergeant Major of the Army a few months ago. We discussed enlistment, uh, enlisted recruit, uh, recruitment and retention and the importance of ensuring that uh, the demographics of the U.S. Army uh, reflect those of the broader American society. And, and General Martin, you talked about the racial tension we've confronted in our country and you've rightly emphasized the importance of, of, of being inclusive and, and project inclusion. That's excellent. Uh, interested, um, for how, how have you managed to keep recruiting numbers on track during COVID-19? I understand that you have. And second, can you provide an update, if you're willing, on efforts of the U.S. Army uh, to make sure that the officer corps in particular reflects the diversity of our nation? I'll take up the recruiting part first, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to the vice chief for the officer uh, part of that. Um, the good news is, uh, without even knowing it, we were preparing for COVID uh, over a year ago, perhaps 18 months ago, when we pivoted from if you will, the industrial age way we were doing recruiting into the information age. And we did that in a number of ways. One was we hired a, a new marketing firm in Chicago. Uh, we stood up a new, uh, if you will, an army marketing office uh, also located in Chicago. We put a, a, a tremendously skilled and experienced one star in charge of that. And we developed a, uh, a new uh, tagline that we call, um, what is your warrior? Hopefully you and the folks that are watching this have seen some of those commercials. If you haven't, you're, you're tuned into the wrong programs at the wrong times. Nevertheless, uh, it, they've done a tremendous, they were doing a tremendous job in the recruiting and marketing field. And we realized that, that we finally were coming up, actually competing on, on an even playing field with, uh, with, our, uh, with our competitors out there. And then COVID hit. It wasn't that difficult to take what they were doing and move it into the virtual arena as well. And that's what we've been doing since COVID. We did a, a, a short pause on recruiting for about oh, a, a month or so. And then we, we vigorously went into recruiting in the virtual mode. And that is, we closed our recruiting offices, but our recruiters were still working much like this, corresponding and, and talking with prospective recruits and their families and their parents, uh, those influencers. And as a result, uh, our numbers have come back online and, and we anticipate that we will make mission this year, even in this COVID environment. Oh. And, and one of the things we've done, we may get into this in training as well, is we built what we call the bubble. Uh, and as soon as a, as a young man or woman decides that they want to raise their right hand and join this team uh, and become a warrior, uh, they go into this bubble. And that bubble continues around them throughout their initial training, throughout their advanced training, and even on into their first duty station. And again, we can get into the details of that. But I think in answer to your question, we've been very successful with our recruiting effort because we were leading up to this without even knowing it through our new recruiting, uh, what is your warrior um, uh, theme and, and what our recruiters are doing at that time and easily pivoting into this virtual recruiting world that they find themselves in even to this day. One of the things that's caused us to do is what, what will we be like when we come out of this COVID pandemic and we can go back into situations as it was before? Will we really need these, these brick and mortar recruiting stations that traditionally we've had? Uh, we may not. And that's one of the things we're looking at is we may continue with this virtual style of recruiting even after this pandemic has been defeated. Hmm. So Brad, I'm gonna, I'm gonna expand a little bit on the undersecretary's answer on, on the enlisted side of the house first, because I think it's a great success story to talk to you about how we've continued to keep moving these recruits into, into the army through basic combat training. And so if you can imagine, basic combat training is typically six weeks long, or excuse me, eight weeks long. Uh, but what we did is we said, what do we got to do to uh, bring this, the, 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 the new soldiers in, uh, place them in a bubble, protect them, allow them to go through basic training, and then continue on through the rest of their training and move them out to their first duty station. 
And so we understood that we needed to know if they were well when they came to the MEP station. And so uh, we asked them before, their, before they arrived at the MEP station to take two weeks to restrict their movement and their activities, and most importantly, interactions with other people. Uh, to monitor their temperature. They're, imagine the recruiter calling them up every couple of days. Hey, you got a temperature? Are you feeling any of these uh, symptoms? The answer is no, no, no to all that. Uh, as they go into the MEP station, we bring them to the MEPs, and then we bring them, uh, we, 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 we swear them in, and we move them to the uh, training center. And at the training center, they walk in the door, and as they walk in the door, they're tested for COVID, okay? That's one test. Uh, if it's if it's positive, then we take care for them like anybody else who's infected, make sure that they get the appropriate treatment they need so they can recover. They're isolated immediately from the rest of their cohort. The rest of these soldiers spend two weeks of quality time together where, interestingly enough, it's a serendipitous opportunity. We're doing a lot of those core competencies and basic training that you don't need to have them. They don't have to have a rifle. Think about starting their PT program. Think about some of the ethics classes, some of the other classes we can do. During those two weeks, we do those things, and our attrition rate, serendipitously, is going down in basic training. At the end of that time, at the end of that training, if they have not uh, displayed any symptoms, they don't have a temperature, we're, pretty, we're, we're, we're fairly confident they don't have COVID. And then they enter this bubble, and they train as a cohort, they go through basic training, and then they move on. Why do I say that example first? Because we took that same example that TRADOC led the way with. We brought back uh, the graduating class from West Point. You can probably re remember reading about that in the media. That was an overly successful operation where we did similar practices, brought them back, tested them, rommed them for two weeks. Anybody that there was a couple, there was a couple of cadets that came back. They didn't have any symptoms, but they nevertheless they were COVID, COVID positive. They were treated, they recovered, they graduated with their classmates. Well, as we brought back the rest of West Point, we did the exact same thing, whether it was for uh, sophomore summer training after their, after their freshman year or other training that cadets do during the summertime. We brought that entire class back. For ROTC, we had to do something a little bit different. As you probably know, we have this huge advance camp that goes on at Fort Knox every year, uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. Uh, we were unable to do that because of the amount of travel that would, would have to uh, occur for that. And also, because you're bringing a Goliath amount of people together, we didn't want to create a circumstance where they, they went to Fort Knox to get ill or, 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 or spread infection. And so what, what Recruiting Command did was they created a program called Agile Leader. And so we're doing advanced camp this summer. We're doing basic camp this summer, but we're doing it distributed. We've taken the cadre, which is very professional. We've augmented them people from Forces Command, and we're continuing to do that training. And so we're on path for basic training. We're on path for every all the all the, the tactical and summer training at West Point, and we're we're definitely on path for the training within uh, recruiting or excuse me, uh, Cadet Command. Uh, but what we'll have to watch closely is you know during the course of a college year. That's when we, we prospect and we recruit for future officers from the various universities across the country. That will be different. This will be a different environment. But I'll tell you that, you know, it's, 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 it's just lucky that Cadet Command and Recruiting Command are on the same installation. And so they're sharing lessons learned so that the PMSs, the professors, the, the professors of military science across the board, are able to understand how USAREC has been successful in the virtual world in recruiting uh, soldiers so that Cadet Command can benefit that from recruiting officers. That's that's a great update on um, basic training and advanced, advanced camps and also on the commissioning sources. Be interested in any update you might be willing to provide on um, the training centers, uh, National Training Center, Joint Readiness Training Center. Are those up and running? Uh, what's happening or not happening there? They are. Uh, we had the fourth Security Force Assistance Brigade recently go through a JRTC rotation as our first rotation. And then we had the first of the 34th Minnesota National Guard uh, that went to the National Training Center. Actually, they're, they're finishing up their rotation, I believe, this week. Um, and so to set conditions for both of those, as you could imagine, we had to create what I've already previously referred to as this, this, this bubble so that we can protect them, allow them to train, but mitigate the, the possibility of infection. And so uh, for, the, for, the, for the, the Security Force Assistance Brigade, we were able to restrict their movement for two weeks. We shipped them to JRTC. We tested them there. 
They began the rotation, and then the JRTC was very careful. The Joint Readiness Training Center was very careful in protecting them. So anybody that, you know, contractors or other role players that entered that training environment, we ensured that they were infection-free as they entered so that they didn't introduce infection into this infection-free environment. Well, same, same with the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, but with the Minnesota National Guard, uh, when you, when you, when you uh, activate an organization like that, uh, beyond its two weeks of summer training, days are precious. So we were unable to restrict their movements for two weeks, but we asked them to do that just like a basic recruit before they began their mobilization process for this, for this uh, training rotation. And then they were tested and then placed in this bubble. They moved to the National Training Center. They've conducted their training. And so far, both of those rotations of both training centers have been essentially uh, incident-free. The infection has not impacted those training environments. Take those large-scale events and think of a microcosm of that. And that's how we're doing home station training across the board around the world in the United States Army right now. Brad, I'm going to hijack your, your broadcast for just a moment. I promise this will Please. be the only time I do it. But I think the, <laughs> the audience would be very interested in what the National Training Center is and does. And yeah. General Martin per commanded that center for a, a period of time. So, Vice Chief, if you go ahead and fill us in what the NTC is. Uh, the National Training Center is what we call a high-fidelity training environment. And it is, I've never seen a place on the face of the earth. And as the commanding general there for 20 months, I had people visit from around the world, around the country, saying that my, my country, my, my, my service wants to create a similar capability. They all walked away and said it's impossible because of the investments that we've made there. It's a high-fidelity training environment because it's focused on live training. It's fully instrumented, and so from individual soldier to every combat vehicle, they're all instrumented. There's cameras everywhere. Every single radio call is recorded. Every mission command, think of the computers, every one of those capabilities, it's all recorded. Terabytes of data is collected, and it allows us to create an environment in an after-action review where the outcome of the fight is undeniable so that you can start focusing on exactly what happened, why it happened, and if it wasn't the way it should have happened, what can we do to improve upon things in the future? It is an absolutely uh, critical capability for the Army, each and every one of our combat training centers, but uh, the National Training Center's got a place in my heart for, for probably the rest of my life, and I see it as the crown jewel of mechanized warfare in the United States Army, and principally responsible for our successes in the Cold War and beyond. Thanks, Brad. Mr. No, no, yeah, Mr. McPherson, I'm glad you did that. Honestly, I am, because um, I, I think it's important for the American public to understand these kind of training uh, capacities that the Army has built. Uh, you know, I mean, just to put it in even more uh, straightforward terms, I mean, we have U.S. Army units that rotate to Fort Irwin, California, and they confront a force that whose sole job in life is to emulate that of our adversaries. So, I mean, it's as bad as close as you can get, correct me if I'm wrong, General Martin, to real combat. And uh, and that's where those tough lessons are learned, you know, the sweat and training that reduces, uh, you know, results in, in, in less casualties, fewer casualties in war. And we have the similar thing at the Joint Readiness Training Center for for light divisions, light units. And then, we, of course, we have the uh, Grafenware Training Center in Germany. Speaking of that, uh, Germany has been in the news. I'm not going to press you on the kind of the top level policy decisions related to that, but I am, would be interested in hearing from you on how any moves of U.S. troops, U.S. soldiers in particular, out of Germany might affect or not affect uh, U.S. Army training in, in Germany. Based on my, my uh, understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we don't really have anything in Italy or Belgium training-wise like, like what we have in Germany, and we're unlikely to in the future. So we've got a lot of training capability in Germany, Brad, but uh, at this point, it would, be, it would be premature and speculative to tell you exactly what the impact will be. It's something that we're taking a hard look at uh, in the Army, uh, in the Department of Defense, and uh, in the future, we should be able to talk about that. But it's too early to—it's too early, too early to tell you exactly how things will end up. That being said, uh, there's some incredible training capability at Grafenwehr training area and Hohenfels training area in yeah. Europe. Uh, there's a combat training center at Hohenfels, smaller scale than the National Training Center, but many of the high fidelity training capabilities are there as well, providing not only us but our multinational partners across. Uh, United States Army Europe, 
and uh, the, the NATO community an opportunity to train. On a policy matter, Brad, if I could just uh, expand upon that more than training. Um, one of the things we've learned, and the, and the vice chief touched upon it, is the competition phase uh, with regard to the national defense strategy is uh, we don't want to be predictable anymore. Uh, right. we, we certainly don't want, want Russia or China to be able to figure out what we're going to be doing six months or a year from now, which is which sort of defines what we did in the past with standard deployments uh, every six months to nine months. They knew what units were going to be where because we knew. So our new strategy in Europe is is right along the lines of being unpredictable. And, yeah. and actually, we're not, gonna, we're not abandoning Europe. We're not abandoning NATO. Actually, we're going to be forward deploying some of our forces in, in flanking maneuvers with regard to Russia. We're going to be putting forces in Poland and some of those other nations uh, and really keeping them uh, on, on, their, on their back foot. They're, they're not going to be, the Russians aren't going to be able to predict what we're doing six months from now in the European continent. No, that's great. Thank you for saying that. You know, the, the idea, as you said, of being strategically predictable but operationally unpredictable, consistent with dynamic force employment and things like that, I agree that's so important. And I also agree with you that uh, it's important to, I'm putting words in your mouth a little bit, I guess, that, you know, the Black Sea region, you know, we focused a lot in the Baltics and building uh, NATO deterrence capability in the Baltics in recent years. Uh, I would say there's, you don't necessarily have to respond unless you want to, there's there's a need to kind of do the same sort of deterrence building in the, in the Black Sea region as well. And if we move a striker brigade or something to that region, that might be helpful. Uh, you know, it might just be good to do those those things in a way that doesn't undermine the bilateral uh, defense partnership with Germany, which is so important in NATO, I, I, I would say. Um, interested in hearing from either of you on um, the Iron Dome system. As you know, the U.S. Army is acquiring the Iron Dome system from Israel uh, to protect our soldiers from rockets and artillery. Curious to what you can tell me is being done with perhaps with Israel to expedite training of U.S. soldiers on those systems that so hopefully they can be deployed as quickly as possible to, to further protect our troops. Well, so as you know, or may not know, uh, we don't have the first Iron Dome system yet, but when that system comes, uh, Raphael, the, 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 the producer, uh, has a United States uh, branch, maybe it's a company, but uh, Raphael, Raphael will, uh, will be assisting in uh, providing the new equipment training for those for those soldiers and those units uh well, we i'm not aware of uh anyone that we're sending over to israel to uh to do that uh i think it's gonna all the training is gonna happen in the united states and we look forward to receiving the first battery that's great no it's a, in addition to what the army already has it seems like it's an impressive capability and and the as the cross-functional uh, team director has suggested there might be a way to expedite deployment so i was curious to hear from you on that thank you um can either of you if you're willing provide an update on the army national guard state partnership program i, I recently published a piece uh, with a colleague in breaking defense on that i'm personally a fan of the program uh, you know many of as you know well many of our combat commanders speak very highly of it wondering if you have any uh, updates on that. I'm sure any new partnerships being developed or what more we might be able to do in the Indo-Pacific with the SPP program. So what I can tell you is uh, the state partnership program, this is something that uh, there's a significant amount of coordination amongst the countries involved, the United States and the country that would be the partnership country and, and obviously the state within the United States, uh, the combatant command and the Office of Secretary of Defense. And so I can't speculate about which relationships uh, will be developed and uh, agreed to in the future. Uh, in general terms, I can tell you that the state partnership program is a very valuable program. It's not only valuable for the partner nation uh, with training opportunities, opportunities to uh, improve upon our interoperability with them, uh, but also it's a great opportunity for the National Guard. Uh, the National Guard, you know, when something happens in a country, we've got a partnership, state partnership program, First, first person we look we look to is the tag of the state that uh, is a part of that partnership to to uh, reach out to those people that have had relationships with, so that we can reach out to the appropriate people in the country who we know and we have trained with, served with, and uh, and and built a relationship with. That's excellent. No, it's been around as you both know better than me since the '90s, and and uh, was focused first on Eastern Europe. And now it's expanded across all of our combatant commands. Admiral Fowler in Southcom calls it a game changer. Almost every country in, in his uh, combatant command has a relationship with a guard unit. And it really does seem to be a win-win. And 
uh, seems important to tie that into the national defense strategy as much as possible, which I know the Guard Bureau is actively working on. That's great. Well, if I may transition, gentlemen, if all right to, to modern, if all right to modernization, I'd love to kind of hear from you on some of your modernization priorities. Um, one of you said that you're undertaking uh, you know, the most significant modernization since the 1980s. I mean, my, from my humble perch on the outside, that seems right, and arguably at a not scale at a scale not seen in a long time. As the character of war changes, it seems like the, to me, and you know, this is partly based on Chris Brose's book, The Kill Chain, you know, the nation that can most quickly detect potential threats, decide what must be done, and then deliver the combat effects as quickly as possible, that's going to be the, the, the military that prevails. And uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a poli-sci guy, not a technologist, but it seems like key to that is, is network. So I'd be interested in any, any update you might be willing to provide on the Army's efforts related to modernizing your network. So. What I'll tell you is there's a lot of things going into the Army, modernizing the Army's network. But if you can imagine, I'll use my hands here, you know, on the, on the periphery, you've got some very important uh, cross-functional teams and capabilities. Think about the uh, integrated air missile defense up here. Think about the long-range precision fires that we're developing. Think about the combat vehicles that we're developing. And think about the future vertical lifts. You come to right to the center of that. That's where we've got the network. The network impacts all of those modernization efforts. It is at the center. And I can tell you, when you talk to our multinational partners, uh, they firmly believe that interoperability is probably one of the most important things we need to talk about collaboratively as we move into the future. So the network is absolutely critical. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to marginalize any of the other efforts, but without the network, you can't do them. Critical to the network. I don't want to criticize the offer, the, 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 the author that you just recently referred to. I'm sure it's a great book. I haven't read it, but when he refers to a kill chain, I think that that under that's that's under uh, what's the right word? It is it is not sufficient to mm. uh, to describe what we believe to be the fight in the future. Instead mm. of kill chain, think of kill web. All right. Mm. Think linking when you say any sensor any shooter think things that are way up in the orbit of this planet things that are flying through the air things that are below surface things that are on the surface in the water things that are on the surface in the land and things that fly near the surface of the land those are all potential sensors and shooters and so how do you link all them together so that they can share data in near real time and I will tell you, I think it's achievable. In fact, I'm confident it's achievable, but there's many things that we've got to work our way through. Our contribution to combined joint all-domain command and control, which is essentially what I was describing, uh, is going to be a couple of things. It's going to be the integrated tactical network. Uh, it's a network that we're moving beyond the warrior information network tactical uh, to something that is much more, uh, much more uh Deployable uh, is it is it is much simpler. It's much easier. It, there's there's many more common aspects to it, and allow our formations to link into a greater network once again to share data. But we've got to work throughout the joint community to make sure that we can have a common architecture, a common data standard, and the ability to create a repository of custody of information that information being the location of the various adversary weapon systems or other critical aspects that are out there in a place that anybody can have access to for the data they need not all the data but the data they need to do that you're going to need to uh to uh, leverage uh, obviously the cloud you're going to have to leverage uh, uh, uh ai at the at the tactical edge so that instead of collecting a picture at a location, sending it back to a location and having an analyst or a computer look at that and then make a determination on that, imagine being able to do that at the edge, at the sensor, at the unmanned aerial system that's flying, where it tells you there is this at this location. Uh, it sends that small data burst into the cloud and it's available to everybody so that within the custody layer, they're able to understand where everything is on the battlefield that's where we're going in the future and when you can do that and you can network all of these sensors and all of the shooters then commanders on the ground in the air or on the surface of the sea or below the surface of the sea are able to bring multiple domains of capability simultaneously together 
in what we call convergence to create these windows of opportunity where we can dominate our adversaries' anti-aerial or anti-access aerial denial capabilities or whatever capability we want so that we can maneuver upon them and dominate them like we have for so many decades and decades in the past, really centuries in the past. General, you, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, any sensor, any shooter, the idea that, you know, any sensor can gather the information and then and then that can inform the actions of, of any shooter. Um, to be effective, as, as you've already touched on, this is going to have to be a joint system. You know, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, everyone, uh, Space Force, everyone's going to have to be in the mix there. Um, that uh, presumably means that, uh, you know, there's going to be lots of working with other services and every service uh, has its own priorities and, and, and things that are important to it. Uh, what is the Army's, uh, if there's one or two things that you you think are it's most important for this network to be able to do, is there kind of one thing that you're tracking uh, uh, that uh, isn't particularly important to the Army as you develop this joint network? Well, it, it's tough. It's it's absolutely tough to say one thing. Yeah. Uh, it's got to be accessible. you got to have standardized yeah. data. Uh, you can't, it's going to, when I say it's accessible, you, you've got to be able to plug into this this network without a translator. If you understand how networks work, anytime you've got a translator where, you know, uh, one system works a certain way and another system works another way, there's latency associated with that. You just needed the near real time. And so at, uh, standardized data, access, uh, access to the network are both key aspects of, of what we believe uh, joint all or combined joint all domain uh, command and control will need to have. That's great. Let's transition, if I may, to uh, the uh, long range precision fires, which is, as you know well, the Army's uh, number one pri uh, modernization priority, as I understand it. Um, can you very quickly, if you wouldn't mind, just explain to the average listener what is long range precision fires and why is it so important to the Army? So couple of aspects there's you know strategic there's operational and there's tactical because we've got efforts going on in each and every one of those so strategic uh, we've got a couple of as a couple of uh, capabilities we're developing the long-range cannon the strategic long-range cannon okay this thing's going to shoot 1,000 miles and be able to deliver multiple rounds simultaneously on a target and the beauty of that capability uh, artillery's been around for a long time, but it's never shot that far. But it's literally undefendable when you can shoot those 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 number of rounds at that rate over that distance. Uh, additionally, long-range hypersonic weapons; those are game changers in defeating exquisite enemy capability. Once again, because it is in un you can't defend against a long-range hypersonic weapon. It moves very quickly and strikes its target uh, very quickly. Uh, the, the, it's going to allow us to penetrate the anti-axis aerial denial layers. Uh, oh, by the way, those capabilities, the long-range hypersonic weapon, fourth quarter 23, we'll be fielding our first battery of that. Um, operational, we've got, the, uh, we've got the precision strike missile. And uh, what the precision strike missile will do for us is it'll allow us to exceed the capability of our ATACM system. It'll go several hundred kilometers beyond that. But we're also in the process of coordinating with other services to bring some other mid-range capabilities into play. Think about tomahawks and think about shorter-range hypersonic uh, weapons. We're looking at land-based, land-launched uh, tomahawk missiles and, uh, and uh, SM6s, which are in the Navy's inventory. We're looking at launching those from the, from the land. Uh, that capability is coming in the third quarter of 23. And then in tactical, we've got the extended range cannon artillery. Uh, that's a 155 millimeter capability where our, 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 our typical artillery right now can shoot as far as 30 kilometers. We're looking to shoot beyond 70 kilometers. And that bridges a gap with our, our near peer adversaries artillery capability, providing us the ability to counter their longer range artillery which can't range this this particular system that's also coming in fourth quarter of 23 and so for long range precision fires that's actually our number one modernization program priority uh we're, we're going to make artillery great again that's the focus and yeah. uh, I, I saw general in the uh in news reports that uh, we had the extended range cannon artillery uh 
uh, do a test in March, I believe, where it reached 65 kilometers, uh, roughly 40 miles. So that, that seems pretty significant if I have my numbers right there. Just a quick uh, follow-up question, if I may, on the precision strike missile or the PRISM, as some call it. I understand that that's, that program's going pretty well, that there's uh, uh, that there's some work on, on a seeker there that would allow the Army to hit mobile enemy radars or ships. So, I mean, that enemy, hitting mobile enemy radars might be very, radars might be very useful in the UCOM AOR and, and ships, obviously in Indo-PACOM uh, AOR. Is there any, any updates you can provide on seeker integration related to the precision strike missile? We're a bit premature to talk about developments in that capability, but that's absolutely something that we need as a capability and we're endeavoring to do as we continue to move forward. Sounds good. General, can I, or, or uh, Mr. McPherson, either one of you, can I ask you very quickly about uh, the integrated visual augmentation system or Bloodhound? Any quick updates you might be able to provide on that? Sure. Uh, so, integrated visual augmentation system, Brad, I can get you the date, but I'd love to take you out to our next touch point. It's going to be <laughs> very close to where you work and live here, and uh, we'd love to take you down there to see it. Uh, but uh, we're, we're continuing to make great progress with it. Uh, the program is uh, moving out very quickly, and it's, 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 it's moving out very quickly because we have taken a company, a vendor, that has developed similar capability for different reasons and leveraged their ability to develop that capability uh, and, and integrate the attributes that we want in, in that particular system. And so I've asked, and these touch points that we've done uh, with the soldiers over time, the first two touch points, and there's been many other smaller touch points that we've done, has allowed this company to take feedback very quickly. In fact, they change things sometimes the day that you ask them to change something, particularly if it's, it's related to software or even hardware in some cases. Uh, but these touch points have allowed us to develop this capability a lot quicker than the traditional acquisition process. And so what is prototype uh, is going to, I don't have the exact timeline in front of me, but what is prototype is going to eventually become uh, a limited rate production. We're going to be able to operationally test this as a unit. And uh, this Bloodhound unit you're talking about is a game-changing capability where you're, you're able to take every soldier who has IVAS and turn them into a sensor. As they sense the environment around them, all the data that they're collecting, it's not something they have to do themselves. It's collected naturally through this network is brought into this bloodhound and then in the bloodhound you can take this data and share it with a greater network it is absolutely game-changing we've never had a capability like this Brad, i gotta tell you i've i've seen pictures of soldiers serving from world war ii until now and we have provided new equipment to our dismounted soldiers i don't want to discount any efforts that the united states army's done but we've never done what we're doing now in terms of providing them a new a new uh, automatic weapon a new rifle with game-changing capability, dominate your peer adversary in terms of range and penetrating power with the munitions that you strike. I had the opportunity to shoot one of our sniper weapons and one of our rifles a couple weeks ago at Aberdeen. Hit all targets that he... <laughs> as far as we know. As far as we know. Yeah. But... And we're giving them new body armor. We're giving them this IVAS capability. We're giving them capability that they absolutely deserve. There's no one that will be able to keep pace with our dismounts. And all 105,000 or so absolutely deserve that capability because if you've ever been dismounted before, you understand that it can be kind of lonely out there. You want to have a link to your fellow soldiers. You want to have a link to as much capability as possible. That's what IVAS and all of the soldier lethality efforts are delivering to our formations. Brad, let me share just a quick Please. anecdote yeah. about IVAS and yeah. the touch point that the vice chief was talking about. Uh, so the first touch, IVAS is essentially a, a heads-up display that the soldiers will wear in their helmets. Right. It, obviously, lots of input into that display and what they see on that display. So initially, the engineers in our vendor, Microsoft, uh, they said, you know, we think we need to limit the number of items on the display because we don't want to confuse the soldier with too many items on that display. So they limited those items. First touch point that took place, so gave it to the soldiers, let them take it into the woods and use it. One of their feedback when they came back was, you know, you, we can see more things on the on the heads-up display. You can put more stuff on there. And so, the you know, the, the 30 and 40-year-old something engineers said, we need to limit that because we don't want to confuse the 20-year-olds. 
20-year-olds came back who have done this their entire teenage lives and said, you know, we could use more displays on that heads up. <laughs> so that's what we've done. You need, you need to have a generational switch. So the age of the soldier that can, that can click exactly. it back and forth. And Brad, let me, for the audience, I know you know this because you are well-read, uh, but what do I mean by game-changing, okay? Uh, think about the ability. Number one, it's, 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 it's a holographic display. So you have goggles that you have on that you can see through, but yet there's a screen in front of you that augments that reality with certain capabilities. It'll, show, it'll chart a path to where you're going. It'll tell you where a reported adversary is, how far that adversary is from your location. It's able to see through see heat. It's also able to augment existing light. We've never had a device that had those two capabilities that, oh, by the way, you can use simultaneously. Uh, it has the ability with a link to the Bloodhound to create a virtual rehearsal and training environment where you're standing in a room and the room doesn't have anybody in it, but in the room, you can program to have an adversary in there, provide blank shooting devices to the soldiers on their weapons and train in that room. There's no bullets shot. There are blanks that are shot. But you're shooting at a target that's in a virtual world, and you can play back that virtual world with this capability. This is game-changing technology for our soldiers, and they, uh, they absolutely love what they see with this. They, they're, 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 they're beside themselves, and so we've got to deliver this, and we're committed to doing that. That's excellent, and that's exactly the technologies that I know you'll agree our soldiers deserve, and that's exactly exactly the technologies they're going to need because our you know our potential great power adversaries are going to have some similar capabilities. So it's so good that to hear that the army's moving out with a sense of urgency on that. You talk about how we don't want our soldiers to be lonely on the battlefield. One of the things that will potentially be with them on the battlefield is the optionally manned fighting vehicle, the OMFV. Uh, I have a question from Jen Jetson as we try to replicate a, a live studio audience here that I'd love to ask you. Uh, from, from Jen Judson at Defense News, uh, after some fits and starts, it now appears that the Army may be planning to internally develop its own OMFV offering, essentially competing against industry. Can you provide an update on the OMFV and address that question? Do you, and do you worry about that potentially internally developing the OMFV might invite protests that could slow down the fielding of this important system? So what I'll, what I'll tell you is this. Uh, one, I, I, would, I would somewhat disagree with Jen's assertion in her question, the assertion that it's a fit and a start. What I'd say is well, from the very beginning, we were on the record saying that we would learn early and we would learn our lessons quickly and we would do it with the minimal resources possible. That's what we did with this particular program. We took an approach, we learned some lessons, and we went right back at it. And that's why that request for a proposal for a design concept is out there with industry right now. One aspect of that request for a proposal is that, uh, that uh, the, 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 the industry was made aware that the government may compete uh, with these design proposals. Uh, it wasn't a guarantee, but it was for their awareness. And so that's where we're at right now. We look forward to receiving these proposal, proposals back this month. I don't know if one will be a government one or not, uh, but we'll wait and see what proposals come back. That's great. In about the 10 minutes or so that we have left, eager to hear from you quickly, if I may, on cyber. You know, pretty much everything that we're talking about here uh, has cyber underlying it. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Samantha Ravitch at FDD played a key role in the cyberspace Solarium, which had some key recommendations about defending Ford. Any quick comments you'd like to make in the context of modernization regarding cyber? Well, it's it's got to be, an, you know, given the fact that I told you that you got all these things out here and the network's right at the center and there's a linkage between all those things in the network, uh, it's got to be a part of everything that we do. We've got to be able to defend our network and we've got to be able to uh, conduct operations in cyber. The interesting thing is, is as you compete with your adversary, cyber is an ongoing operation. As we are, as we are communicating with each other right now, there's someone defending this network so that we can maintain consistent communications. That's a fact of life. And so, every single program that we bring, we we bring together, uh, cyber is a critical part of that program's development, and it's got to be something that's got to be considered, and it can't be a trade because there'll be a price to be paid for that trade as we move into the future. Um, this enables us to uh, compete at the threshold below armed conflict so that we can deter our adversaries from competing. 
Um, we've got a couple capabilities out there. One of them I'd like to mention is called the Deployable Defensive Cyber Operations System. Uh, this enables us to tap into a network and gain a position of advantage. It's an airline carry-on size kit capability, uh, and it's, uh, it's got some key cyber defense tools that allow us to be able to protect our network better. But we've got many, many capabilities like this, and we've got a team of teams in our cyber uh, and throughout the rest of the Department of Defense that work very carefully together to make sure that all of our capabilities are developed quickly and remain uh, remain uh, uh, keep pace with the contemporary and future cyber operating environments. One of the things, Vice Chief, yes, I'm sorry, one of the things the Vice Chief said is right now, real time, uh, we have a soldier assigned to uh, Army Cyber Command who's monitoring this particular exchange and protecting it from any hackers, we're protecting it from any adversaries. It's very likely that that soldier is a member of the National Guard. Uh, I had occasion to visit Army Cyber Command a couple of months ago and watch them real time doing that. It was a National Guard unit that was in place at that time uh, doing that. And I'll get the opportunity this October, uh, the privilege of going down and helping cut a ribbon at Army Cyber Command's new headquarters at Fort Gordon. We're also is the uh, Army Cyber Center of Excellence where we train these cyber warriors uh, of the future. I'm so glad you mentioned that the National Guard and Reserve have tremendous cyber capabilities. And in my previous job, we went and visited with the Indiana National Guard, for example, that was doing really important uh, cyber work uh, uh, in the DC DC area. Um, as you guys, per as the Army pursues these these fundamentally important uh, modernization programs, um, what is your assessment of the U the U.S. defense innovation and industrial base? Um, you know, what are your concerns? You know, there's been lots of discussion about how it's changed over time because of the Budget Control Act. Uh, you know, not not getting timely funding from Congress. Some of these problems that we've all we're all concerned about. What's the health of the U.S. defense innovation and industrial base right now, in, in your estimation? I think the health of the industrial base is very good, uh, mm -hmm. particularly given the COVID environment that we're in. Uh, speaking for, for the Army, from our, for our depots and our research labs, uh, as the Vice Chief spoke of earlier, we have a, a bubble over them as well in, in protecting them from, from COVID. And quite frankly, it, it's, an, it's an older workforce we have in some of our, uh, some of our depots. Uh, they have exquisite skills that they've learned over the years that we still are, are very much in need of. And we need to protect that older workforce from this, this COVID pandemic. And we are doing that successfully. Uh, we haven't slowed down operations in, in any of our depots or any of our research laboratories uh, because of COVID. What we have discovered uh, is that our, our major uh, contractors, our vendors, uh, they aren't having any issues, but some of the issues are arising in some of our supply chain. Some yes. of our smaller companies that are key suppliers of key components, that's where we're having some concerns, uh, particularly in this COVID environment uh, of how that's impacting them. But we're cognizant of that. We're working with our major contractors on that to ensure that that supply chain keeps pace with uh, with the necessity that we have. I think that's excellent. That's so important. Um, the, uh, you know, my, my take for whatever it's worth is that one of the reasons that the U.S. military has been so excellent over the years is really two things. It's the quality of our people, our soldiers, uh, and the training they receive, and, and, and the weapons they're, they're wielding. And that comes from our innovation base. Most weapons are not made by the Department of Defense, and that's why we rely on this innovation industrial base. So the health of that base is, uh, is good for the soldier and good for our country, I would argue. And I guess, our, unfortunately, we're out of time here. One last question, if I may. Uh, you know, so many, and I'd love to hear from both of you very quickly, if you're willing, so many of these modernization programs that you've been working hard on for years and devoting so much time and attention to, you know, they're going to be fielded, uh, you know, Lord willing, over the next, you know, two to five years, give or take, right? And so how important is it uh, that the Army receive timely and sufficient funding over the next two to five years so that you can field these programs that you're working on? And what would be the consequences for our soldiers if, if that were not to happen? So I'll start off with one thing and uh, and pass it over to the under. Um, here's, you know, er, for the past couple of years, we've had a CR. Oh, actually, last year we had a CR. Um, but when we, have a, when we have a continuing resolution, it has a significant impact on us, and here's why. Um, if that resolution, uh, if, that, if that continuing resolution persists throughout the year, uh, you can take any of the resources that we have programmed and budgeted for uh, during the course of that year, and you can double the price of whatever yes. we were asking yeah. to, to procure. Yeah. Um, because if you can imagine, 
uh, you can't do you can't do a new start under a continuing resolution. So let's just say we have four billion dollars of new starts that we have funded in a year. We go through that year and we're not able to do that. Well, the requirement hasn't gone away to buy that equipment. So the lost buying power of the four billion dollars that year actually turns into eight billion dollars of lost buying power because in the next year's program we're going to have to spend those four billion dollars to buy what we couldn't buy the year before, and so it's a huge impact. And you say, well, what impact does that have on the soldier? It's quite simple. They're going to get that piece of equipment later than they should have, later than they deserve. And so it's important that we have consistent funding and our defense industrial base deserves consistent funding because these fits and starts to resources for them really screw them up. They need to be able to see a long term into the future so that they can hire the appropriate workforce, make sure it's ready to go and deliver work for the workforce over a long period of time, a, a, a period of time that is not going to be impacted by, I'm sorry, we can't get the funding right so that we can continue to do it. That 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 is significantly, in my opinion, affected the, the defense industrial base. So, so it increases the cost of the taxpayers and it delays the delivery of capabilities to our troops. Meanwhile, as they're confronting com their uh, potential adversaries that are fielding those very same sorts of capabilities as we speak. And that can have real world life and death facts on the battlefield. Gentlemen, unfortunately, we're out of time. Oh, sir, one quick comment. Go ahead, please. I, I just, I don't think the Chinese have the same problem. Yeah, right. And right. I want to get back to your initial question, Brad. Yeah, it's go Army, beat Navy. Yeah, <laughs> very good. All right, excellent. Gentlemen, on behalf of myself and everyone at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and our Center on Military and Political Power, thank you so much for making time to be with me. And please allow me to express thanks through you to our men and women in uniform who right now, as we speak, are keeping us safe and free. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Brad. All right, best wishes. Thank you. Take care.